Good morning, church. Everyone uh, still a little tired from your turkey day a couple days ago? Uh, we uh, kick off, as you see, a new series today. Uh, but before we do that, I just want to share, if you're new with us today, uh, I'm Pastor Chad. I'm one of the pastors here at Austin Oaks Church. Uh, and, and we want you to know we're a church that's simply about Jesus. We want to help you meet him, know him, and follow him. And this series, we're starting a great light is one that just kind of captures that. It points to him and how Jesus is the true light. And light symbolizing life, symbolizing hope, symbolizing all these things that we all long for and hope for in this world. In fact, I was reading, I was kind of nerding out. I'm I'm kind of a science guy, and I was reading this fascinating thing about the sun, that if the sun were to shut off, like just like that, it would be amazing how quickly all life on this earth would, would be gone. Like within a few weeks or months, the temperature of the earth would drop so low that it would be almost uninhabitable. Not to mention all the oxygen that it helps produce through photosynthesis, all the energy that we have, literally almost every form of energy that we have, from what you put in your car to what you put in your body, originated from the light coming from the sun. There's almost no source of energy that we use that didn't originally come from the sun. Geothermal would be about the only type we have. And so just the amount of life that is caught up in light. And here's another encouraging fact for you over Thanksgiving. The sun is eventually going to die out. You know that? It's going to become a red dwarf. That's one of the seasons of a star. And when it becomes a red dwarf, it's going to expand out and it'll swallow up the three closest planets within our solar system. And guess what one of the planets is of those three? Yeah, that's us. That's your future. I'm here to encourage you with that news. (laughs) It'll be a few million years before that happens. But we can laugh about it. The reality is, though, that's going to happen. And so if life is just what happens with all these atoms and all these random things that come together, if there's really no hope beyond just the stuff that's here, then nothing really has any meaning because eventually everything's just going to be swallowed up and burned up and gone. But God has stepped into this world, and this season is a season to remind us of that, of no matter how dark, how gloomy, how difficult, how challenging, even the holidays can be. Sometimes holidays, maybe more times than not, are more difficult for people than they are a blessing. We love to tell the stories. We love to make movies of the ones that all turn out the way we want. But the reality is there's just as many that don't seem to. And we can often ask ourselves, where is the hope in that? Where is the light in those situations? And so this series is that. How do we find hope? How do we see hope? How has God spoken into the darkness of this world to give us a light that's greater than this world? Uh, One of the beauties of this is during this season, if you're new to church life or or maybe haven't grown up in more traditional uh, type churches at times, uh, there's a season called Advent. Advent is the Latin word for coming, and it it refers to the coming of Jesus. And the church has celebrated this season uh, for hundreds of years as a kind of a reenactment of what it was like for those early followers of God to await the first coming of their Messiah, Jesus. And Advent, you know, was that season. And now we recreate it and thinking, hey, let's go back and remember what it's like to celebrate Christmas, that they were awaiting their Messiah. But it's not just that first coming of Jesus. Now we stand in the season where Jesus came the first time, but he also has a second coming that's going to be very different than his first one, where he brings everything back to being right, where he judges what is evil, and he prepares his new kingdom for absolute perfection going forward. That's hope. That's light. And so these candles up here uh, we have will symbolize that throughout this series. Uh, Each one of them, uh, Advent is the four Sundays before Christmas. So this is the first one of that, and then we'll close with Christmas Eve uh, in the middle. That one's not here yet, and it's going to appear at some point in the series. So we will not only light a candle each week to to memorialize or remember one aspect of Jesus' coming and what is important, and today we'll do that one time. We'll also connect it with a testimony from someone in our church uh, that kind of captures or 
or yearns for that particular aspect of Christ. Today we'll have a, a video testimony within the message that you'll see. And at that time, we'll light the candle. So that's where we're at today. We're in this new series starting out uh, for these next four weeks. We're beginning a season we call Advent in preparation for Christmas uh, and getting ready for this Jesus who is the light of the world, who has been proclaimed as the light of the world. And why do we put our hope in him? Why is that so important for us as Christians? So I'm going to pray. Uh, we're going to be in Isaiah chapter 9 today, one of the most famous passages around this whole Christmas season. Uh, and we often are very familiar with these four names of Jesus that are given in this passage in Isaiah. But we've maybe lost the midst of where this prophecy came from and what the circumstances were and when it was spoken into and why that's so important. And so today we're going to step back a little bit and set up the need for this prophecy, the need even for this series, and see how even back then those situations and the need for that prophecy then speaks to us today just as poignantly as it did to them back then. Let's pray and then we'll jump into our message today. Father God, we, we pause to be mindful of who you are. And Lord, in, in the season that we're in here as, maybe as a family, uh, as a church, as a city, as a nation in the world, uh, reminds us of our need for hope, of our need for your guidance, of your light of someone, something to break into this world and, and fix what we all can perceive as wrong. And we are clamoring for leaders and, and for solutions everywhere we turn. But we seem to end up back in the same spot over and over again. And Lord, that's a reminder that the solutions that this world needs will never come from this world itself. So Lord, as we uh, reflect on this section of scripture, a, a great truth that you spoke into this world and have been carrying out even over hundreds of years, Lord, may we be reminded of the hope that we have in the light of Jesus, in the goodness of who he is. We love you and we praise you and we ask you to speak to our hearts today and your spirit to guide us into all truth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If we're honest, we, we'll see that the, the spirit of Christmas or the call of Christmas today is really simply a call to arms to be the very best version of yourself that you can be. That's a lot of what Christmas has become in our society. Tied to a very spiritual beginning, but now broadened out to a point where everyone celebrates it, but it's been watered down to simply a call to be the very best version of yourself that you can be, except on Black Friday. Right? That's the one exception that you don't have to do. In fact, my, one of my older daughters that's still at home, she's never done a Black Friday thing, and so her and her friend said, hey, Dad, we're, gonna, we're just going to try Black Friday this year. We're just going to see what it's all about. And she was actually going out like as a spectator thinking, I'm hoping to see people like jumping over carts and grabbing stuff from people, this whole big thing. And they drive to Target, you know, and get there when it's opening up, and there's seven cars in the parking lot. She said, Dad, it was such a letdown. Like, no one was ripping stuff out of people's hands or anything. Like, people know this is what Black Friday often comes in the midst of it, in the midst of a season where we're all about sentimentalizing this spirit of Christmas and simply becoming the best versions of ourselves than we can. You see, Christmas skips the problem today and gets right to what its desired outcome is. But the problem is, you can never skip the problem if you want to solve the problem. And true Christmas has to deal with the darkness if you're ever going to enjoy and experience the light that it promises. So today we're going to look at one of the most famous passages in the Bible about Christmas. But before we see the beauty of Jesus that we all run to and we see these names hung up on ornaments and on hangings over the fireplace, we're all familiar with these. We have to step back and look at the darkness 
that existed in the midst of this. In order to see the beauty of Jesus, we got to see the baggage of humanity and why Jesus was necessary. So in your Bibles, we'll be in Isaiah chapter 9. I want to read through this passage, but here's really all I want to do today to to introduce you to it, because we'll touch on each of these names. I want to ask two questions today that I think this passage is answering. One of them is, why do we need a wonderful counselor? We're going to look at this name, wonderful counselor, today. But first ask, why do we need a wonderful counselor? Why is that such a great message to have? If we don't understand why we need him and why he's so significant, we'll never truly appreciate the beauty and goodness that he brings. And then lastly, we'll look at what will he look like or what will he be like? And we learn that from his name, Wonderful Counselor. So first thing is, why do we need a wonderful counselor? First, let me explain Wonderful Counselor really briefly to you because we'll get more into it as we talk about it. But uh, in your head, when we hear this today... We often in our modern, more counseling, therapeutic type of generation think of Jesus as this guy that sits in his office and we just come in and visit him and he gives us great counsel, he comforts us and and does all those nice things that counselors do and then sends us out on his way. That's not how this word is, is used in this time. It's not how it's used in the Old Testament or even through scripture. Counselor, even though it might incorporate bits of that counselor was more of like you'd say almost like we would use in a legal sense a a counselor that that gives you great wisdom on how to execute something or a a counsel that sits around a world leader and gives him great wisdom and and how to execute things or how to carry things out so this is a strategic leader a strategic counselor someone who can't just give you great wisdom but can execute and knows how to get things done That's the idea of this counselor, is is they have a plan and they're excellent at carrying it out. Uh, One way to maybe illustrate this in a simple way is is think of some of the greatest comeback quarterbacks that are in the NFL right now. I know you may not be able to connect with this, but just hang with me for a minute, okay? You think of some of the greatest comeback quarterbacks like, like Patrick Mahomes. Like it doesn't matter where the game's at. He seems to be able to figure out a way to get his team into a spot where they can win the game. Matt Ryan's another one. There's a third one that I don't want to mention, but you got to mention him because he's probably the best at it, is Tom Brady. If you've watched these guys play, in fact, I love watching at the end of games because there have been so many games where, like, in the last minute, the, the lead changes three different times because they're teams that are playing and both those quarterbacks can, can get the ball down the field and execute it and get them into the end zone with hardly any time left on the clock. And when you listen to these interviews, you hear the other players as they're talking to them and say, how did you feel? Did you, when did you feel like maybe the game was out of hand? And you'll hear them say, you know what, it, it, looked, it certainly looked hopeless to a lot of people, but we've played with this quarterback, you know, insert name, for years now, and he's always been able to get us in a position to win the game. Like, they're not hopeless at that moment because despite how far behind they might be or how impossible the circumstances look, they have a strategic, phenomenal leader that knows how to get the job done and get them into the place where they need to be. That's what this passage is talking about with Jesus. He's not just there to comfort us. He's this strategic counselor that sees the big picture and doesn't just know the right thing. He can execute it with absolute precision no matter what the circumstance might be. And he steps into this circumstance that they find themselves in. So let's read and and see where we come into this wonderful counselor in this passage. So Isaiah 9, starting in verse 1, starts like this. Mark this. If you have your Bible with you, if you have your... Uh, on your phone, highlight it. This is such a key phrase. It says, nevertheless. Nevertheless. That nevertheless is referring back to everything that has just come up in verses or chapters 7 and 8 leading up to this. It's the circumstances that Israel is in at this time. Nevertheless, it says, that time of darkness and despair will not go on forever. The land of Zebulun and Naphtali will be humbled But there will be a time in the future when Galilee of the Gentiles, which lies along the road that runs between the Jordan and the sea, will be filled with glory. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. So Isaiah is into a prophetic word here. He's he's 
narratively ex explaining what's just happened, saying, hey, regardless of the circumstances, this is what's going to happen. And now he's starting to speak into it. And to understand this, you have to understand a couple things about prophecy. I won't go too much into it, but I think this is a really key thing to understand about prophecy and as they speak of these things, is, is when prophets prophesy, they're often prophesying things that are way into the future, and those things may not line up exactly time-wise in the future. Here's a way I'd explain it. When we, were, when we were living in Laredo and our kids were younger, we'd often take trips to Colorado in the summer, and we'd always drive there. And as you get close, you always knew when you could see the mountains, you were getting close to Colorado. But what's spectacular about this and what's similar to this is when you see those mountains in the distance, you just see their peaks all jetting up right next to each other. But when you actually get there to the mountain range, it can take hours and hours to drive between those mountain peaks. Are you with me on this? From a distance, they look like they're right next to each other. But when you actually are there, it takes forever to get from one to the next. That's true of a lot of prophecies in the Old Testament. When they're speaking about things that are going to happen in the future, they're going to speak them and share them as if they're right next to each other in that sentence. But when you actually get to that moment in time, there can be hundreds and even thousands of years between them. And that's what's happening even in this passage. Isaiah is talking about not only Jesus' first coming in this passage, but he's also talking about aspects of his second coming. And he's just speaking into the future about these two mountain peaks and we can sometimes say, well, what's, why is he, why, I don't understand what he's saying. So as you read it, you have to say, oh, yeah, this is something that's going to happen in his second coming. This is something that's referring to his first coming. And he says this, the people who walk in darkness will see a great light. For those who live in the land of deep darkness, a light will shine. You will enlarge the nation of Israel, and its people will rejoice. They will rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest and like warriors dividing the plunder. For you will break the yoke of their slavery and lift the heavy burden from their shoulders. You will break the oppressor's rod just as you did when you destroyed the army of Midian. The boots of the warrior and the uniforms bloodstained by war will all be burned and they will be fuel for the fire. Those are images of the second coming when Jesus comes to reign supreme. And he is victor over all the oppressors. Now, we see some spiritual elements that will be played out in his first coming. But that's really speaking of his second coming. But then he jumps to his first here in verse 6. For a child is born to us. A son is given to us. So there's his first coming. And now he's going to jump even to the latter part. The government eventually will rest on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So what is this darkness? It says, nevertheless, in this passage, that time of darkness and despair will not go on forever. The land of Zebulun and Naphtali will be humbled. This is some perspective we need to have here. Jesus, in, in this case, is going to change the circumstances, but Isaiah is prophesying at a time when Israel is a divided nation. If you're familiar with their history in the 700 BCs, Israel was divided. After Solomon, the king kind of split, and there's a northern Israel and there's a southern Israel, and if you know the history, the northern Israel never had a good king. They never had one king that followed after the Lord, and they got worse and worse and worse, and God sent foreign nations to conquer them, to suppress them, and to basically discipline them. He was disciplining them because of their waywardness. And the southern kingdom wasn't a whole lot better. They had periodic good kings, and they'd have a good run, and then they'd have bad kings. And it was back and forth, back and forth. And so they were in a season here where the northern kingdom was just about to be conquered. And Isaiah's telling them this prior. He's saying, hey, turn back to the Lord, or this is going to happen. The Assyrians were coming in, and they were kind of the world empire at that time, and they were going to destroy the Israelites, the northern Israelites, and they eventually did because Israel never turned back. And they were coming for Judah, the southern kingdom, as well. And God was warning them. Isaiah was warning them, don't 
follow suit with that northern kingdom. And they'd have a good king, and then they'd fall back. And they, they hung on for a, a little over 100 more years, but they were eventually con- conquered by Babylon for the same reason. It was a dark time, and they would be taken off into another land, and it was wiped out. Their homes were destroyed. They were absolutely, you know, slaughtered in so many ways and taken to a foreign land. And this went on for hundreds and hundreds of years. Even though they started trickling back, we see that later on in the scriptures, they never had full control, sovereign control of their land ever again until just recently. Right in the 1900s is when Israel finally got their land back to some degree. And if you follow Israel at all, you know it hasn't been an easy go for them. It's a constant battle as they continue to reject their Messiah. They are going to constantly experience the oppression of foreign nations. We're talking hundreds and thousands of years, people. We're not talking about a 30-minute sitcom that always seems to resolve itself at the end. We're not talking about often a lot of our sentimentalized stories that we think, if I just hang on just a little bit more, God's going to fix this situation soon enough. This went on for a long time. This darkness extended for an incredibly long time. Generations of time. And we so often, and, and Christians maybe are, we're the worst in some ways, is we want God's fix here on this earth. And we love the stories that, that we get that fix or we get that healing. And there's nothing wrong with that. We should celebrate those and those should be reminders to us that God does those things here on earth. Jesus does heal. And he healed when he was here on earth. But he walked by a hundred more people that didn't get healed that didn't get that answer, then he ever healed while he was here on earth. Because he didn't come to fix this earth as it is. He came to bring a brand new one. And he's still working out that plan as he still, through generations, is redeeming and saving people throughout history. Church, we live in a dark world. Because despite all the worldly advances humankind has made, we cannot achieve our hope. We can't do it. We can't fix it. We are messed up, and that's what these chapters show us. We are broken sinners. We follow broken leaders. That's what this chapter was telling us, that they were following poor leaders at that time. They were believing all these conspiracies. It actually say, says this in that passage. You're, you're fearful and you're buying into all these conspiracies and God's saying, fear me only. Trust me as your God. Don't get caught up in all these conspiracies. Don't follow any leader that you think can solve these problems. Don't go after spiritual solutions that are outside of my world. They were going after mediums and calling up the dead and looking for any answer they could. They were scrambling just to try to fix this broken world that they were in instead of leaning in and trusting God and his infinite plan. Tim Keller says this about Christmas. He says, Christmas means the world is a dark place. Christmas is a message of unparalleled hope, yet Christmas is also telling you something about the world and about your own heart and about your own mind that is sobering and insulting. The world seeks to understand its problems, analyze its problems incessantly, but it cannot find the solutions to them. That's why the world is a dark place. We humans have been on here for a long time. And don't get me wrong, we've made lots of technological advances that make the world look like a better place on the outside. But until we're truly honest with the fact that on the inside, we're just as dark and we're just as ugly and just as messed up as we ever were at any other time, we'll never be prepared, we'll never humbly recognize that the hope and the light that we need does not come from this world. I want to point you to a testimony, our first testimony of this series. Um, 
from a man who walked through a situation too and didn't have great resolution in it. And I want you to hear and just lean in and listen to his story as we relate it to the true need of hope and the true solution that awaits us. My mom, uh, Elisa Martinez, is wonderful. I remember growing up and dancing with my mom. I remember listening to the radio with my mom. Um, I remember learning how to cook with my mom. And I remember my mom, like a lot of parents, sacrificing everything that she had. In most recent years, she is the woman that greeted you at church. She greeted with my father, and she was there Wednesday nights and Sunday nights, every week, faithfully. And she knew everybody's name. Everybody walks in, and everybody gets a smile, everybody gets a hug, and everybody gets um, their name addressed. It's a God-given gift to call someone by name. It's important, um, and she knew that. Um, in early March, I got a call from my brother. Um, hey man, I don't know what's happening, but Mom is confused, and we think it might be some form of dementia. We're going to talk to the doctor, but she, she doesn't really know how to spell. She's having a hard time writing. She's forgetting where she is. My mom is a, my mom is a brilliant, well-read well woman. Uh, she reads all the time. She reads her Bible all the time. She writes notes and letters all the time. She's never at a loss for words. She knows how to express herself. It's a bit of a blur, but over, over time, you know, each week or two, we would get more news that she went to the doctor, she got an MRI, she got a CAT scan, and often there wasn't really anything that was um, progressing in terms of information, only that she was losing more and more of a command for language. I didn't understand until I talked to her. She was very confused, and at the time she was still in a place where she was able to say, you feel like a child. You feel lost, and it's a little scary. My mom's not a very fearful woman. That was hard to hear. One day she fell. That landed her in the hospital, and at that point they took a deeper dive, and at that point there was more information, and at that point um, it was very clear that um, she had a form of brain cancer. And there's always hope, there's always hope, there's always hope. My brother FaceTimed me, and, and he said, it's cancer. And it's not the type of cancer you fight. The doctors said it is a glioblastoma, which is a very uh, aggressive form of brain cancer. She might have six months, eight months. And you want to believe in a miracle because God is the same yesterday, right, as he is today. Absolutely. Um, people are raised from the dead. They are healed. They get up off their mats. And I was thinking, what if my mom doesn't get off her mat? Who is God? And so over the course of four months, um, I got multiple calls and multiple calls. Son, you need to come down to Corpus. Son, it's really bad. Son, this might be the last time. I saw her in the hospital a few times and she hated it. She hated the hospital. But some of the most meaningful songs that I've sung, some of the most meaningful worship that I've led um, was at that hospital. She passed on August 24th of this year, so I drove uh, down to Corpus where my dad was with uh, some of his uh, church family. And he looked me in the eye and he said, son, God is good. And my dad has never <laughs> ministered to me before, like ever. <laughs> but what he said was probably, the, those were some of the most important words from one of the most significant circumstances that I could have heard in my life. 
my mom has passed and my father has just told me God is good. That was the first thing he told me. So I've had a lot of minor loss in my life, but nothing like this. On, on this side of heaven, that hurt will always be there. Um, that, that is the world we live in. This is an imperfect, fallen world. This is a world of hurt. This is a world of pain. But that is not the entire story. When I think of God as a wonderful counselor, it's a God that says, I got you. I'm doing something, and it's good. It means I can't always make sense of those pieces. Um, but it does mean that I have a peace right now, day to day, whether I'm having a disagreement at work or having a hard time um, just managing something else, that there is a, there is a peace and there is a joy that I don't even understand some days. And I think that as, as God, as the wonderful counselor, that is God ministering to me um, and moving me through the day. You may be facing an unsolvable situation as well in your family. It may be a, a health issue. It may be a financial crisis. It may be a, a relational situation that, that the holidays tend to heighten a little bit. And, and you wonder, will this ever be resolved? At least the way I want to resolve it. I want to fix it. I want to change it. And sometimes we just don't see that, just as they didn't, that, that there was incredible darkness that extended over a long period of time. But that does not thwart the incredible wisdom and plan of God that's far beyond anything we can imagine. He can orchestrate his comeback in any season, at any time, and it's not on our timeline. So I want to invite you now for a moment to participate with me. I've walked through things like this as well that haven't resolved or haven't ended in this world the way that I would have wanted them. And they're deeply hurtful and they still hurt at times. But we're going to light the first candle of Advent and hope around this concept of a wonderful counselor, of the one who is powerful enough and strategic enough to orchestrate his plan in spite of how messed up it may look like in this world right now. We're going we're gonna to confess what Isaiah said right here. Nevertheless, the darkness will not go on forever. So if you find yourself with one of those things, you don't have to share it, but you, you can just stand in acknowledgement of it, and I'm going to go and light it, and you can light the candle with me. You put your hand out as if you're lighting it, and we'll light this first candle together in hope for a wonderful counselor who can orchestrate his perfect plan as he does, even when we don't see that resolution and may not see that resolution in our lifetime. So if you find yourself in one of those spots, would you stand with me in prayer? and in symbolic gesture of lighting our first candle. Lord Jesus, we confess that we don't fully know like you fully know. And in hope and even in darkness, we believe that the darkness will not remain forever, and we light this candle in hope of your coming. All right, you may be seated. We need the wisdom of God and the wonder of his glory. And, and beautifully, this passage ends with this bit of hope in the midst of it. But what I want you to see is, is what will he be like? So when this wonderful counselor comes, what will he be like? How can we identify him? How does he tend to work? And how do we get snippets of him now that can point us towards that ultimate hope? 
First of all, we're going to see that he is like un, unlike any other leader. And we see even in the, the first passage here of darkness, this darkness and despair that's not going to go on forever. But it says, but there will be a time in the future when Galilee of the Gentiles, which lies along the road that runs between the Jordan and the sea, will be filled with glory. That's where Isaiah starts this and kind of gives us a picture of, of where he will come from. And we'll see his coming in different ways. But his coming is going to be very unique. It's going to be very unexpected. And it's not the way we would probably carry it out. And it's so important that we understand and see these truths in here. He's going to come in unexpected places. Now, this Naphtali and Zebulun, that means nothing to a lot of us. But to them, it meant a whole lot. And it's simple when you understand more maybe the history and geography of Israel. They were the northern uh, tribes of, of Israel. They were the tribes that were eventually conquered. That region was conquered by the foreign is, uh, Assyrians in this context here. And the Assyrians, when they conquered them, they would often take out all the elites, all the wealthy people, all the people of status from a nation. They would remove them all and exile them to their own nation. And then they'd bring in all their own people and kind of replace those in that area to kind of take over. And so those areas that Zebulun and Naphtali became known as Galilee of the, Gal of the, you know, Galilee of the Gentiles, of the non-Jewish people. It was kind of that town, right? Everyone kind of has one of those places. No, oh, you, didn't, you didn't come from there, did you? That part of town. That's what this was. This was that part of town. In fact, if you remember the story, and it's told in, in the Gospel of John very at the very beginning when, when some of uh, Nathaniel's friends and brothers bring, bring them to Jesus and say, this is, we think this is the Messiah, this is Jesus of Nazareth. Do you remember what Nathaniel said? He goes, like, Nazareth? Like, what good has ever come out of Nazareth? Nazareth was in this Zebulun and Naphtali area. It was in the bad part of town. At least in our worldly mindset. We often think, hey, these are the sparks. If I can just get myself moved to this part of town, then life will be good. Life will be fixed for me. And what God shows us is when he shows up, he doesn't show up in the obvious places. To them, he should have showed up in Jerusalem. I mean, it's the capital of his town. That's where everything was happening. But that's not how God works. God doesn't work the way we work, he shows up in the most unexpected places. And that's why there's always hope no matter where we might find ourselves. What are the Galilees of Austin? How have we fallen into this same trap of missing how and where God works because we're so concerned about getting to the Jerusalems of our area rather than seeing maybe God's the God who shows up in the most hopeless looking scenarios because it reminds us of the wonderful counselor that he is. He doesn't take on the easy tasks. He goes to the most seemingly difficult and conquers them with ease. He came with an unexpected timing. Isaiah prophesied this in the 700s, and Jesus' first coming wasn't until 700 years later. That's a bit unexpected. That's certainly not on our timeline. It's not the way we like to work. We like to have things done yesterday. That's our MO, but that's not how God works. It's unexpected. His second coming, we've been waiting over 2,000 years for it. And as discouraging that may be on one side, that should be encouraging at the heart to say, he doesn't operate on our timeline. He is still doing what he's doing in spite of the fact that it seems like a long time. We saw they waited 700 years for their Messiah to come. So maybe we'll be waiting for a little while as well, but it doesn't change God's plan. He came in unexpected timing, unexpected places. He also came in an unexpected manner. That's what we learn about him. We see this as you jump down to verse 6. It says, for a child is born to us, a son is given. 
If your plan was to become the most influential person in all of history, and you had, had a campaign leader that was going to help you execute that plan of becoming the most influential person in all of history, how do you think we would go about doing that nowadays? How do, how do our political leaders or people of influence go about doing that? They usually find the biggest venue they can get. They do the, as much promotion as they can, and they go to the best schools. They bring all the things that would make them appear greater, make them significant, and they hype it all up, and they bring in as many people as they can, and they want to say, hey, all this attention here, you've got to start with the very best if you want to become the most influential. But that's not how Jesus came. Think about it. Think about the impact he has had on the world from the time he was born. Living just 33 years. He was born in a stable. He was born to a poor family. He died with no more than a garment to his name at his death. He had absolutely nothing. He didn't go to the best schools. He didn't live in the best neighborhoods. He didn't have any of the things that we would see as being an influencer today. And yet... There's not a part of our world that isn't somehow impacted by his life. Not a race, not a country, not a nation. Christianity is maybe the only world religion that doesn't have a central place to it. It's, it's growing in Africa, it's growing in the Middle East, it's growing in, in Asian countries, it's growing at spectacular rates in these places where every other world religion has a national identity that's so locked into it that it tends to be associated with them only. Christianity has gone across the whole world. Jesus comes in the most unexpected manner. And we see as well from how he was named. He's described as a wonderful and wise counselor. I want to close by reading this passage and giving you a couple simple points of application where we bring this truth toward the New Testament. Paul spoke of the wisdom of Jesus in this wonderful and wise counselor in a unique way in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Follow along with me. He says this about Jesus' salvation for us. He says, Remember, dear brothers and sisters, that few of you were wise in the world's eyes or powerful or wealthy when God called you. Instead, God chose that the world chose things the world considers foolish in order to shame those who think they are wise. And he chose things that are powerless to shame those who are powerful. God chose the things despised by the world, things counted as nothing at all, and used them to bring to nothing what the world considers important. As a result, no one can ever boast in the presence of God. Now listen to this. God has united you with Christ Jesus. For our benefit, God made him, Jesus, wisdom. He made him that wonderful counselor itself. God made us right with God. He made us pure and holy, and he freed us from sin. His strategy is like no other. But, but many of us have maybe gone to a wise counselor or got wise advice from someone. Here's what makes Jesus wonderful. I've had people give me great advice, but one of the challenges always is, is they give you the advice, but guess who has to execute it and make it happen? You do. Even in people you've counseled, we've probably all gotten good counsel, and sometimes we put it to work, and sometimes we don't. Oftentimes we probably don't, right? It's a little too hard. That's too much work. Jesus doesn't just have that wise counsel. Jesus carried it out for you and for me, making us the world foolish to think of how he operates. He's not just a great counselor, he's a wonderful counselor. He did for us what we could never do for ourselves. He faced the reality of its darkness, this world's darkness, with a wonderful wisdom that this world could never understand. Think of it this way. Let me go back to 
the illustration that I kind of started this counselor with is think of a, a, a quarterback that led his team to a strategic win, an incredible win. He skillfully did that. And, and you see that happen all the time. And that makes them great, like, strategic leaders. But none of them have ever been wonderful because what makes Jesus wonderful is that when he won that victory, when he defeated the enemy, in a sense, when he defeated those others, he then welcomed them onto his team to enjoy the victory. You see, you and I were the enemy. It was your sin, it was my sin that put this world in the predicament that it is, the darkness as it is. And until we recognize that, we'll never humbly submit ourselves to the wonderful counselor that he is. We will always seek to find our own solutions to our problems. No, I got this. I can handle this. I can do this. But Jesus did that for you. And now you, the very enemy, are invited into his team by faith, by trust, by humility, by accepting him as the wonderful counselor that he is. So I want to leave you with these two thoughts, two simple things that you can apply from this. There's many you can apply, but here's two that I think could be helpful from this text. One is about hope, and, and it's this. It, it doesn't matter how hopeless your situation is. Let me say that again. It does not matter how hopeless your situation is. Jesus is the wonderful strategist. He's the one who knows exactly how to enter into your situation, whether it's in your lifetime or extended well beyond. You don't have to understand it. He's got it figured out. It's his pattern. It's his method of operation. It's why he came. It's where your hope is truly anchored. Don't give up because you perceive that you're in a hopeless situation. God's been dealing with them ever since the beginning of time. The second one is this. Maybe you, you aren't finding yourself in these kinds of situations, and, and as Christians, we can sometimes become very prideful in that. We can think, you know, I must be doing things right. I must be living right because things are just going smoothly for me. I got it all going here. But that's not how we're to respond when things are going well for us. That's not how Jesus responded when he came to earth. He humbled himself for us, so we should humble ourselves for others. The goal is not to continue to make my life better here on this earth, because it only has one direction it'll ultimately go. The goal here is to give what he has given you for the sake of others, to model for others what Jesus has done for us, to give of himself for the sake of others, to win in a sense, to, to pursue something not for yourself, but for the sake of serving another, to go to impossible situations or unfathomable scenarios and be present with the hope and the light and the wonderful goodness of Jesus Christ. He humbled himself for us. We should do the same for others. Let's pray. Father, thank you for... Thank you for truth. Thank you that your word does not water down the brokenness of this world or our brokenness. Lord Jesus, thank you that you didn't shy away from stepping into the mess that we created. You knew it would cost you your life. You knew that from the moment you set foot on earth, that you would be humbled. I can't imagine what that would have been like to go from the glories and the beauty of uh, that all is all you've ever known in the presence of your Father and the Spirit in heaven to then be wrapped in human flesh 
born to a struggling family, working. You work, you owned everything. You could have lived a life of luxury. You should have. Yeah, you worked with your hands like someone whose life depended on it. And then once you showed us what a perfect person looks like, what an absolute sinless life would be like, you instead died like the worst of criminals. You took upon yourself the death that we deserved so that we might have the hope and the glory and the light that you deserve. Wonderful doesn't even capture it. That's who you are. So we cling to that hope. We thank you for that glory and that goodness so that when our light goes out, Lord, we know that that's not the end, that you have shined a greater light, a superior light and hope in this world in the midst of often darkness that we see. We love you. We praise you. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.